Well, we're going to pick up here, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the second part in a three-part series on the priesthood of the believer. Now, I'll go ahead and confess to you that this series has been limited to three sermons. Not because I didn't think I needed to go over this with everyone, but as I'm digging and digging, you find there's so much more in Scripture. It's just inexhaustible how much you could pull out of the idea of what it is to be a believer priest, especially today in the 21st century uh, when we live in such a consumer-heavy society. And when you talk about priesthood, you talk about ministering. Uh, Every believer is a priest, and priests are ministers, which means that believers are what? Put it together, guys. Now, let me go over it again. (laughs) Priests are ministers, and every believer is a priest, which means that every believer is a what? Minister. Every single one of us. See, some of you were trying to avoid it last time, so I broke it down slowly so you couldn't get past it. If you know Jesus Christ, this is you. If you've come into that relationship with Christ through faith alone, you have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and you've been commissioned with a purpose, and that is a priesthood. Now, last week, we talked about our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Where in the world did we get this priesthood? Number one, we've got a great high priest. And so we talked about some things that could get very daunting and complicated. It was very scripture heavy. It's very theologically heavy last week, but I wanted to break it down into a chart to hopefully help you grasp some ideas. And the big contrast that we had going on was between the priesthood of Aaron, which is an Old Testament priesthood that was given just to the Jews, and then you have this brand new priesthood or this eternal priesthood that is through a man named Melchizedek. And that's because he had no genealogy on record. There's no beginning, no end, no father, no mother, that type of thing. And when Jesus Christ came, he could not serve as a priest of Aaron. He's not of that tribe. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. While on earth, he didn't try to lay hands on the priesthood. However, if Jesus would not have assumed the role of priest as he should be as a sacrifice for sins, there would be no priest to offer the perfect sacrifice of sins on our behalf, and we would still be dead in our sins. Salvation wouldn't be possible. So this is why it's important for us to understand. So some contrast that you have here. Good gravy, that's so small I can't even read it. Let me do the faux pause public presenting and turn around here. Let's see here. Okay, I'm on. The priesthood of Aaron serves as a priest only. That's the only office that they get. However, Melchizedek serves as a priest and a king. If you remember, he's the king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. So he's the priest of the Most High God, El Elyon in the Hebrew, and he's also a king. Notice that Aaron is not a king priest. Saul was Israel's first king that's on record. However, Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, and Jerusalem actually means king of peace, or Salem, king of Salem, king of peace is what it means. The interesting thing about Aaron's priesthood is you had to be from Aaron's line only. There was no crossing over. No one from Reuben's line, no one from Issachar's line. No one from Gad's line, no one from Judah's line could be it. It was a one straight shot. You had to be descended from Levi. However, there is no bounds on lineage as far as Melchizedek. The interesting thing about Aaron's priesthood is it had a high turnover rate. Death would take its toll. You'd have to be set aside. And remember, just because you have a quantity of priests doesn't mean you have a quality priesthood. And so as priests would die, a new one would have to come and take the place. 
What qualifies someone as a priest of the line of Melchizedek? Well, it's only one thing. You endure forever. That's the only requirement. All you got to do is be able to live forever. This is what qualifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he doesn't just have life in himself for now and the future. He's always been. The doctrine of the eternality of God applies to him as much as it does the Father. There is no difference. So he's always been with no beginning. He is and he always will be. And because he has a worthy sacrifice to present, he needed to be raised from the dead as the great high priest in order to bring that sacrifice into the heavenly temple of God. The priesthood of Aaron was imperfect and it needed to be replaced. It had to go. It was a temporal time to communicate a fact. And that was that sin separates us from God and blood must be shed to repair that fracture in the fellowship. However, this priesthood of Melchizedek is perfect forever. When Jesus Christ made atonement for sins, does anybody remember what he did right after that? Had a cheeseburger? No? What did he do? He said it is finished, yes, but what did he do after he offered sacrifice for sin? Yes, he pronounced it on the cross. Anybody remember? He sat down. Do we ever think about priests sitting down? I mean, it seems like if they're ministers, they're continually at it. In fact, when you think about what it was for a priest of Aaron to undertake a burnt offering, anybody remember how long you burned that offering? 24 hours, night and day. Can you imagine a guy out there with a little slow rotisserie just getting it going? Got to get this thing going, right? Might be the best barbecue you ever had. However, very time-consuming. And the reason was is because he was going to be back at it again later. Every year, there was a day of atonement for the great high priest. Every year, every year. Why? He had sin to atone for, and he had to atone for the people. So every year, there was an interval. The great thing about Jesus is when he paid for it, he sat down. Why? Because there wasn't anything left to do. He rested from his work, and the only way that you can rest from your work is if your work is perfect. What else did he have to accomplish? And see, this is why this infiltration of stipulations on the gospel is so detrimental and and, and damaging to the church. It's because whenever you're saying, well, I expect this result. Well, this person needs to act this way. Well, I'm looking for this kind of fruit in their life and those types of things. What you're saying is, is Jesus sitting down was a mistake. Or at least he should be clearing the way for you to get in there and finish what he didn't complete. I wouldn't dare tread on that ground because it's called blasphemy. That's scary. The last one, the priesthood of Aaron is inferior to Melchizedek's priesthood. However, because it's eternal, it is superior to Aaron's priesthood. With teaching of the law through Aaron's priesthood, it passes away. Why? Because now we have a great high priest who isn't just the coming king and our present priest who made the perfect sacrifice for us, but he is righteous beyond compare. There's no one more righteous. The interesting thing about this is, is both are appointed by God. God knew what he was doing because he is progressively revealing how he wants to work in history. And there came a time for the perfect priest to get the job done. Now, with that being said, that transfers into you and me. Because it's true of Jesus, it's true for us. Now you're saying, wait a second, do I have to give some sort of atonement? Do I have to come in and give some sort of sacrifice? No. And then yes. And we're going to see that today. But the most important thing I think we grab is, is how are we dressed? How are we clothed as priests? 
How does this transfer to us? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, and I'm so thankful that we read the beginning part so we understand that, right? Because we've been born again with imperishable seed, and because we now have a capacity to love because we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where that love comes from, it's a word that never passes away. It's how we were born again. Therefore, look what he says, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, putting aside, that would be the equivalent of changing shirts. Deciding I'm not going to wear those shoes anymore. Throw those funky old shoes aside and put on some new ones. This verse 1 is the subtraction of the believer. If these things are going on in your life, they are not characteristic whatsoever anymore of the enduring word of God. They got to Now, what are these things? You know, we can't leave a list just lying, thinking that we all get it. We've got to break it down. Number one, all malice. It's wickedness. It's having ill towards your brothers and sisters. I don't think it's any coincidence that he brings that up first. Why? Because he just talked about having a love for your brothers and sisters. If you have ill will towards your brothers and sisters, you cannot love them properly. One's got to go. Now, he would not command us of this. You need to subtract these things out of your life because they don't properly characterize the word that caused you to be born again. He wouldn't tell us to do this if it wasn't possible. Set it aside. Anybody know how to set aside malice? Where's that start? Do we know? Huh? Starts in the heart, and where's it lead to? Do we know? Ah, who said it? Forgiveness. It actually comes out of the mouth. Everybody remember 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. But in order for us to confess it, we have to be convinced that it's wrong. I have to have a hard conviction of saying my attitude towards my brothers and sisters is messed up. And then I come to the Lord saying, Lord, this is wrong. And I obviously don't have control over it, otherwise it wouldn't have got to the point that it did. So I need to lay it down to you, and I'm trusting your word that you're going to cleanse me from this so I can move forward in victory and solid fellowship. Notice the next one it says here, and all deceit. That word literally means a snare. It means to lay out the bear trap for your brothers and sisters. Trying to catch them in something. Man, writing to believers like that? We are some squirrely people. Either that or Peter's reflecting a lot off of experience about how we, how we act. Not deceitful, not underhanded. Notice it says here, and hypocrisy. To, to, to betray yourself is one way and to be something else. Does that ring a bell? Somebody walks in the room. <clears throat> right? We even got a different way of standing. All of a sudden, our posture is the most amazing thing ever. Why do we do that? What are we trying to prove with those people? It makes me think of James chapter 2. Where he says, when a rich man comes into your congregation, don't fall over yourself trying to get their attention. And then a poor man walks in. You say, here, sit here and hold my feet. That's crazy. Hypocrisy. Subtract it. Envy. I want what they got. Despising a brother and sister because of how they've been blessed or privileged in some way. Get rid of it. How about the next one? And slander, evil speaking, railings, speaking down to. Man, it's fun to come up with these definitions and look at them. 
railing your brothers and sisters? You slandered a fellow Christian lately? What was the purpose behind that? That stuff's got to go. Verse 1 is a subtraction verse. Does everybody notice that all of these have some sort of connection to the mouth and what it can do? Everybody see that? It's really significant what a believer priest does with their mouth. Because out of this mouth comes praises to God. And yet if this is the way that we are handling our interpersonal relationships, our fellowship time with our brothers and sisters, there's a hypocrisy that lies right here. And it's a problem. Now, verse 2 is a more positive verse. This is an addition verse. What do we need to add? Like newborn babies, and I love that because it says, long for the pure milk of the word. You know what the pure milk of the word does? It fills up that mouth so you can't do anything else with it. Right? In fact, you know that something's going wrong in the feeding process when the nipple's on the side here and they got... Experience, people. Experience. But I tell you what, if you're feeding them properly, they don't have anything else to say. They're taking in. They're not giving bad things out. Like newborn babies long, crave, desire deeply the word. Look what it says here. You fill those places that we get rid of with the pure milk of the word. Why? So that by it you may grow, that's the purpose, in respect to salvation. And that's not talking about just go to heaven when you die. That's talking about your righteous standing before God, your practice before God now that you are in Christ. And it talks about your eventual glorification before him and with him at the judgment seat of Christ. He wants you to grow into understanding your salvation more. Why? Because the only way to break those sinful habits in our lives is that we would think differently so that we approach them differently. No one ever just stops doing anything. This is why we have such high turnover rates in abuse and addiction rehabs. You shouldn't do this. Yeah, that was bad. I shouldn't do that. Well, until you're convinced, no. I'll go ahead and make a confession to you. I have some people who come to me and say, hey, I really need help with this. I really need prayer with this. Okay, cool, let's do it. And then you find that they don't have the desire to really be different. And it's not that they're trying to muster up the power in themselves. They just don't want to think differently. It's always defeatist attitude. It's always, well, I'm right and they're wrong and I'm refusing to forgive. And it's always this vendetta or this something that we've got to prove. When did we become such a prideful people that we feel like we got to prove ourselves all the time? There's no grounds for God to work there. Pride is already filling the heart. Where else is he going to work at? We're squeezing him out by making much of ourselves. That's not working. It doesn't work. It says no, long for the word. Get rid of that stuff and add the word more and more to your life. Why? Because that's the only way that you grow in your understanding of your salvation. And when the mind is changed, life gets different. Verse 3, if you have tasted... The kindness of the Lord. Now, this is not Peter doubting the salvation of his people. That word should be probably translated better since. It's perfectly acceptable to do that in the Greek. You can look it up. I can show you some things. Come and let me know. Since you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. What was that? Well, that was everything that we saw there in chapter 1. 
If you've experienced this kindness with the Lord, there's your motivation for why things ought to be different and you should desire for the word to fill you rather than the evil, dirty, uncharacteristic things of a believer in Christ to be pouring out of you. Make the switch. Be convinced that the kindness of the Lord pushes you in that direction. Verse 4. And this is really interesting the way this is worded. I'm surprised that some people miss it. And coming to him as to a living stone. Stop. Who's Peter writing to? Believers. In fact, if you research Peter, you'll remember that he is the apostle that was called to the Jews to lead the Jews to faith in Christ so that they would become believers. And coming to him. Here's an interesting thing. You might remember this from a little while back. Whenever we talk about what it is to come to the gospel, to hear the gospel and believe, it's always God setting up a plan in order to come to us with the gospel so that we would believe and be saved. But anytime that we're talking about growing in our salvation, it's always because we as believers have come to him to take those steps into a deeper walk with him. In fact, a a good way to, to judge whether or not you're growing in the faith is to ask yourself the question, Are you intaking the word and are you coming to him expecting to grow? Have you come to him to come to these terms with him about going deeper in your relationship with Christ? He comes to you for justification, but he waits for us to draw near to him so that he will draw near to us in sanctification. He says here, coming to him, it's to a living stone. Anybody ever seen a living stone? That's somebody with the last name Livingston. I think of Mexican jumping beans. I don't know why I can't get that out of my head. I got some of those as a kid. I thought, whoa, this is weird. And then I found out they're little worms like fighting for their life trying to get out of those things. I thought, who is the cruel fool that did this? It's terrible. And then one day they stopped jumping and that's just sad. Anyway. Coming to him as a living stone. Now, what is the picture that he's trying to draw here? Look what he says. Coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, in other words, hated by the world. The world doesn't understand it. Common person's life doesn't grasp it. They're living for themselves. They're living for their own variety or promotion. They don't grasp Jesus. But look what it says after this. But it's choice, good translation of that word. In other words, he's the best of a selection. It's like you would talk about a choice wine, something like that. It would be the best that there is as a choice and precious in the sight of God, a choice and precious stone. In other words, he's highly regarded because his value is astronomical. This is God's assessment of the son. So when you come to Jesus as a living stone, which the world doesn't understand, but in God's sight, is the best of a selection and is highly valued because of who he is. Look what it says here in verse 5. You also, now stop. Who's that? You is not singular here. It's the plural. Who's that? The church. You also, church, as what? Living stones. Stop. Does everybody see the connection? How into Christ are you? When you came to faith in Christ, did you just get a leg in? You have hokey pokey theology. You know, you got one leg into Jesus and then you got one leg out. 
You shake it all about. Is that how we do it? No. When we came to faith in Christ and were adopted in God's family, how in Christ are we? There's no part of us hanging out at all. We are completely clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're enveloped. If you weren't, think of the idea whenever you put a letter in an envelope. By the way, I did the electric bill thing again the other day. Check was inside, bill was outside. I'm sitting here going, I told you guys about that. It's a common occurrence in my house. And I couldn't get rid of it, right? The stamp was already on there. I wasn't about to write my return address anymore. Forget it. Personal struggles. But think of the idea as you are a letter that has been put into the envelope and sealed in Christ. Completely covered. As he is a living stone. So we too are living stones. Living stones. Let me ask you a question. Where did we get that life? You go back up to the top in chapter 1. And you look at verse 23, for you have been born again, given a new life. Not the old life. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now you're living. And so what we're talking about is Jesus Christ being a stone. And we're going to see that that's a corner stone. And we are living stones that are placed into the wall that are all in connection to him as the cornerstone. What it says here, coming to him as living stones, you also as living stones, verse 5, are being built up. That's presently happening. You are being built up as a spiritual house for a, what is it, church? Holy priesthood. Now, everybody awake and look at the screen. No excuse for not having it. Built up as what? A holy priesthood. If you're a priest this morning, raise your hand. Those of you that didn't raise your hand don't know how to read the word, or at least don't believe it. And that's not a slam. But when we come to this situation, we have to recognize that what we believe about ourselves must be rooted in what God has said about us. I'm a living stone. I'm a holy priest. And everybody notice that it's priesthood. Everybody see that? That's corporate in nature. That's all y'all and me. That's us, the church. The church is a holy priesthood. Now, how are we holy? Somebody answer me. We're holy because Christ is holy. So we automatically have that identification, yes? What does it mean to be holy? Set apart. Holy other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Yeah, I spelled that right. Making sure. Like, is there an E in there? No. Forgive me. Dan Quell moment. But anyway, set apart completely. Otherworldly. Do you recognize this morning you're an otherworldly priest? Do you feel like an or Well, I didn't bring my robes today. Well, I don't have my fun pointy hat. I don't, I'm not carrying a scepter. I don't have any offering in my hand. I don't have an altar anywhere. What does the Bible say? You're a holy priesthood. Now, let me ask you a question. If holy means set apart, set apart for what? Set apart how and set apart for what? For good works? How do we know that? Ephesians, the word says, I love that. 
Jay's got 66 books to choose from. It's in there somewhere, right? Word says so. There you go. We're a holy priesthood set apart for good works. Yes, that's one of the things that we do. We understand that from the word. But set apart from what? The world. Does everybody see that when we're declared a holy priesthood, that's all-inclusive of believers in Christ? Everybody see that? So notice that's not a holiness that we work towards. That's not a landing that I'm trying to get to. Well, I just need to struggle a little bit more. That's something that as positionally speaking, we already have in Christ. However, what's interesting is, is he brought up verse one for a reason. Put away these things. Because that's talking about our practice, how we live in relationship with one another. And ultimately, what reflects what the world sees. Let's be honest, if if verse one characterizes anything, doesn't it characterize the world? Doesn't it characterize the view? Doesn't it characterize your local newspaper? Doesn't it characterize everything that the world offers? And yet we're set apart from those things. Those things are foreign. In other words, we're in a realm existing all of our own with a special designation as a priesthood, an entire group of priests, and that old world has no bearing or touching upon where we stand in this new identity. This is just part of our identity in Christ. If you want a really great thing to do, if you notice you go to the back of your Bible, you've probably got one or two white pages that are completely blank. Everybody have that in their Bible? Yeah? I encourage you, start one. At the top, write, who I am in Christ. And as you read through the New Testament and you find it, go back there and document it, because I guarantee you, when discouragement comes, you're going to need that. Next time you get down, think. I'm part of a holy priesthood. You might say, well, that doesn't help me very much. Stop. What do priests do? If believers are priests and priests are what? Ministers, then believers are? Hold on just a second. That just touches upon how we use our time as priests. Our involvement in this priesthood actually doesn't just call us to have this clothing of hope, set apartness that's automatically ours. But because priests are ministers, and we've got the Old Testament that shows us how they were ministering in that way, that means that you and I are to have a life that is consumed with ministering as priests. In fact, we're called ministers of reconciliation, yes? We're called that. How about the rest of this? You're being built up, notice it's the analogy of a house, into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That means it's not acceptable when I'm doing it my way, when I think how it ought to be done, when I'm taking care of it. By me intaking the word of God so that I'm growing up in salvation, I'm going to know how to dispense my priesthood. Everybody see that? So it's not just lost on how you think you ought to do it, no. Jesus has set a pattern. We do it his way. And now they give us some quotations. Verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. I think Jay wrote that verse. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner. Notice that stone's not there. It's okay, but we understand what it is. It's a cornerstone of a house. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be ashamed, will not be put down, will not be disgraced. 
This precious value, the precious value of who Jesus is as our great high priest and our connectedness in being living stones and a holy priesthood because of who he is, that's what makes us what we are. Notice, this precious value then is for you who, what? Believe. Is Jesus Christ precious to you? Does he have precious value with you? Notice, this is a precious truth for the church. If you believe, you should embrace this. Now, we're going to get more into the responsibilities of the priesthood next Sunday. Let's stick with this. But to those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, ah, this stone isn't going to be a good cornerstone. That's what they say about Jesus, don't they? Like they're all PhDs in in construction. But notice here, this stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They disregarded it, yet they're going to trip over it every time. And any time that they deal with, it's going to personally infringe upon them. I mean, isn't that what to be offended is? Our culture is real good at recognizing it. We're offended by everything. In fact, that's a way of the world. How is it that Jesus Christ could come sent of God totally out of his grace to give his life as a ransom for every single person? And let's be honest, guys, the church has messed this up some and saying, well, you got to do this, 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 and this in order for Jesus to accept you. We're saying Jesus did it all for you. Believe in him and you will be saved. And for some reason, the world looks at that as bigoted and offensive. That is a warped sensibility. But isn't it proving out exactly what Scripture says? Yeah. He's a stumbling block to people. He's an offense. Why? It's not because he was wrong. It's not because the stone was bad. It's because they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't receive the simple information about him that's true. Notice, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. There's the reason. Not the stone's fault. It's their fault. You know what that tells me? It tells me that they are culpable for their decisions. They're culpable for their assessments. See, this is the reason why we are not just to share the gospel with people. We're to make disciples, give them all the information we possibly can about Jesus Christ so that they can respond in faith with a knowledgeable response. It says here, and to this doom, that word doom is not there in the original, they were also appointed. In other words, and what this word means, uh, appointed here, is to be placed in a position of something. In other words, If this is how you're going to respond to the word of God, this is the logical consequences of what's going to flow out of that. That's how it's going to happen. Now, verse 9, here's what's interesting. He comes back to the believers. But you are a chosen race. A, what's the word, church? A royal priesthood. Okay, you're not just holy, you're royal. Anybody in here feel royal right now? I don't see anybody wearing any crown. Well, I see some of your crowns, but that's because of lack of hair, right? Crowns, yeah, I got you on that one, didn't I? Thinking the Lord, there's no mirror back here. A royal priesthood, kingly. And let's be honest, if we're talking about royalty and kingly, we're talking about ultimately a what? A kingdom. Isn't that also what Jesus has accomplished? He wasn't just priest, he was also king. And if he is a priest and a living stone, and we also as living stones are priests alongside him, a holy priesthood, you know what our opportunity to be in the future is, right? Kings. 
In fact, in Hebrews, this is what it talks about when it talks about us being partners with him, partakers with him. The Greek word is metakoi. It's the idea of because a life lived faithfully in service to him here merits us ruling and reigning beside him in the kingdom to come. Notice the opportunity, the position's already there for us. It's reserved. It's waiting for us to take full advantage of it. The question is, is will we be what he's already secured for us to be? Now, here's what I love about it, because Peter sticks in some application for us on this. And watch this. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice it's all corporate here. A people for God's own possession. We are his, praise God. And then he gives you the so that. Here's the reason. Watch this. So that you may proclaim, you may report, you may tell it out. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, why that didn't get an amen, I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, you guys amen now. Let's read it one more time and get it. So that, why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a holy priesthood? Why are we a holy nation, a chosen people? Why? He's got something for us to do as priests. He wants you being priestly. He wants you to priest it up while you're here on on earth. And what is that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, compassion. Look what it says here. But now you have received mercy. In other words, the church... (laughs) Such a suck-up over there. In other words, we're a confessional people. We are a confessional priesthood. This is where I want to put the baton in your hands. If we are a royal priesthood in order to proclaim the excellencies of him who's delivered us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light, What are the excellencies that we need to be proclaiming, reporting? What's that? The Word of God? Our testimony. Do we want to tell people the truth of God's Word? Absolutely. And a testimony focuses in on the truth of God's Word, but also connects it to the idea that it's real and personal. A lot of people got a lot of theories about God and how He works. They learned it from late night television or something weird. Madam Cleo, I don't know. You guys know her? See, you guys giggle. I know you stay up late at night. You watch Madam Cleo. This is Madam Cleo. Call me. Nobody? She's a fortune teller. 900 number. Cost you your life savings. It's terrible. <laughs> How do you know that? Shh. A testimony. Believe it or not, you've got something to say. Well, I could never. Says who? says you try saving yourself how's that going to work out you see what i'm saying so a lot of times when we come up with this defeatist attitude what we actually find out is that we're railing against everything that god has said is true of us because he's got a purpose on the other side of the position he wants to put us in 
What do those excellencies look like? Or let me ask you a little bit different line, but the same question. What has God done in your life? Tell me. Now, I've got to repeat it for everybody online to hear, unless we want to pass the mic. I don't know that we want to do that. But tell me, he saved me. Jay, has he done anything since that? Okay, when did you get saved? This morning. <laughs> no. Long time ago. But what has he done in between? Salvation is great. We praise God for justification. Yes, thank you, God, for saving my soul. But does he just work in that moment and stop? I got you in the door. <laughs> Hands in pockets. No. What has he done? He leads us. He helps us grow. These are all so general and vague. This is stuff he answers. Well, what prayer? What prayer did he answer? What prayer did he answer? We couldn't have kids. Doctor said no. Not going to happen. You might as well go ahead and think about continuing on life. If you want kids, you need to adopt. I'll never forget the look on my wife's face when she came to me. Several years afterwards and said, I am burdened. The Lord is putting on my heart, I need to be a mom. And me, with all my worldly wisdom, said, well, I guess we better look into adoption. And so that's what we did. And we started praying. She started praying. And if I've learned anything, my wife can pray. Now we have two. And I've learned more about how much I sin against God in these past five years. But I tell you what, nothing else could have taught me that. Nothing else could have taught me how desperately I need him. I can read it on the words of the page all day long in the scriptures. But God, since he's the truth about everything and works in every life situation in order to lead and build up his children, uses these real life examples and testimonies to say, here's where God was working. God was working. Here's where God was working. And these are the things that this world needs to hear. You think COVID's gotten people depressed? You realize we're one of the only churches in town for miles that's meeting together. Now, me personally, and maybe I shouldn't say this as a leader, but I'm going to, I think the mask mandate can eat it. That's me personally. But I also understand that not all my brothers and sisters feel that way. And so therefore, it's my responsibility as a believer in Christ to consider my brothers and sisters better than myself. I'm also called to respect the authority of our governor. May not agree with it, may not understand it. It's not hindering me from preaching the gospel or representing Christ in any way. So why not do it? But here's an interesting thing I see. God is working. God is working in each one of our lives. Each one of us have something to say about the excellencies of our God. And one of the greatest ways that we dispense our standing as a priesthood is to tell of his excellent greatness, praise him, praise him. Everybody remember that? Anything the song I've been telling us for years. What are you telling the world about how excellent God has been? What are you telling him about the testimony that you've seen? What are you telling him about how intricately involved he is in putting together the pieces when you thought there was no way that it was going to come together? Isn't he a great and merciful God? Isn't he full of grace? Isn't he good and loving? 
Doesn't he love his kids? He didn't just save us and say, y'all stay in diapers forever. He said, intake my word, grow up, and oh, by the way, you're already priests, and you're already fully accepted, and you're already reserved in heaven. You already have a seat next to my son. Already. Sounds like somebody went over the top to love me. And if that's the case, and if I could get rid of some of the other things that the world's telling me about myself, how I ought to be, what I need to wear, how I need to look, how I should feel, what your future holds today because you're in Aries, whatever, and get rid of all that stuff and recognize Almighty Creator God has stepped into history and died for me. And he is building me up and loving me up and lifting me up and investing in me all the time because he has an incredible potential. Thank you for using that word. There is a potential for every single person in this room, but it's all rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. A great place it starts in dispensing our priesthood is telling of his excellencies to other people. Exactly. And I'll close with this. One of the greatest problems we've had during COVID is that the church hasn't had anything to say except we're closed. That's what our nation's saying. All we need is one virus to take us out, to cause us to shut up, sit down, stop making problems. Do we be careful? Do we be sensitive? Do we be loving? Do we be considerate? Do we be healthy? Yes. Do we be silent? Never. Never. We have a calling. We have a priesthood. We're set apart. We're royal. You feel like a royal this morning? Royal. I can't fathom that. But that's because it's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us a million things to tell this world. Excellencies. God, I pray that we focus on that word, excellencies, that we would proclaim your excellencies to people. Lord, we praise you for setting us apart. We praise you for putting us in a royal position. And it's not because of what we've done, and it's not because of what we deserve, but it's because grace is magnificent. It's otherworldly, truly. Father, I pray that you bring to the surface of our hearts today how you're working, what you've done. I pray, God, that our conversation as the body of Christ here would be consumed with unfolding the glories that you've performed in our lives, how we've seen your gifts be abundant, how we've seen your hand reach in and change hopeless situations. How you've been almighty God to us in a very personal and real way. Lord, we have much to say. And I pray that we would not forget your gifts of grace. Give us mouths to speak forward. We pray it please. In Jesus' name, amen.